0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit corin.com.
2: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network
3: Welcome to Japanese, I'm your host Akiko Katayama, a food writer and director of the New York Japanese culinary academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from a studio at Roberto's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every deli in the supermarket, but what is beyond the sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, and zakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I'll try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. My guest today is Richie Nakano, who is a chef based in San Francisco and a former chef and founder of Hapa Ramen that was known for unique and umami-rich delicious ramen. So today we'll talk about how Richie got into ramen, his philosophy about ramen, his creative ramen recipes, and much, much more. But quickly before we start, Japan eats is available on Heritage Radio Network website as well as on iTunes and Stitcher as podcasts. Please go to iTunes, iTunes and Stitcher, and subscribe to Japan eats. Now let's start our conversation with Richie Nakano. Hello, Richie. Welcome Hi. to Japan eats.
4: Hi, Akiko. Thank you for having me.
3: So um, first of all, uh, you are half American, half Japanese. So where and how did you grow up? Did you eat a lot of Japanese food?
4: I did. uh, My grandfather was actually a a chef. He had a Japanese restaurant, a teppanyaki restaurant. Wow. And uh, that definitely influenced uh, a lot of my eating growing up. My dad was not a chef, but he knew how to cook really well.
5: Mm. And
4: then also my mom was a great cook. So food was pretty important in our household. Mm. Um, I was born in Virginia, but then we grew up in California. So we always had like a garden going in the backyard.
5: Wow.
4: And uh, yeah, and I was taught from a pretty young age uh, some very basic recipes like how to make like miso wow. and teriyaki and things like that mm.
3: so your father's side is japanese mm-hmm. and mother's side more american right, right right so what is your favorite japanese flavor when you grew up
4: uh i mean the most comforting thing that we would eat would be like my dad grilling teriyaki chicken and just having that with rice mm. um and then uh time that my we would see my grandfather he would take us fishing and then he would panko crust uh, fish and then fry it for us. Wow. And that was always really fun, too.
3: <laughs> You're spoiled. Yeah, And <laughs> yeah, right. um, so what inspired you to become a chef?
4: Um, I was working in restaurants already in the front of house. Just I thought it was sort of like a temporary stop on the way to going to college or something like that. Mm. And then uh, I just got caught up in it. I was, uh, I was cooking at home a lot, and then I just realized that I should take the next step and try cooking professionally. It's the least romantic story about how you started <laughs> cooking <laughs> mm. but uh yeah i ended up going to school for it and uh i really connected with it so i just kept doing it
3: mm, so you went to school in uh, in california in
4: san francisco yeah i went to the cca which isn't there anymore um i went to this really old campus that was in sort of like a dingy part of town and like Mm. my car would get broken into all the time
3: yeah (laughs) right you survived
4: yeah i made it through
3: (laughs) right and uh i heard that you worked at many different kinds of restaurants including sushi french bistro local sustainable, uh, new american restaurant so why did you cook different kinds of food
4: uh when i got started i thought that i just wanted to cook japanese food and then uh pretty early in my career i went to work for a chef who was from hawaii who So he had a lot of Japanese flavors, a lot of Hawaiian flavors, and he was Filipino, so he brought just like this sort of pan-Asian thing to the table. But then all of his training was in French cooking. So from an early start, I got uh, a big cross-section of knowledge about flavors and techniques and things like that. Mm. And so when I got done working for him, I wanted to go get away from Japanese food and Asian food for a little while and Mm. do something different. So that's when I went to NOPA and doing like more Mediterranean stuff. Mm. Um, And that's where I came to really know like ingredients and sustainability and vegetables and things like that. Right. So So
3: suddenly you got to know you haven't seen before. Yeah.
4: Yeah. And when I went there, it was sort of, I was honestly like kind of like rebelling against what I had been doing for my whole career because it had been so Asian forward Mm. And so going there, I was like, I don't want to cook with soy sauce anymore. <laughs> and it's funny because, like, at the end of working there, uh, I was really hungry to get back to working with Asian flavors because I'd been away from it for so long.
3: Mm. So this really needs a break.
4: Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, I, it, I felt like I was being like a rebellious teenager, you know? <laughs> and like, I kind of like had that moment for a little while, and then I came back to it
3: later mm. on. Right, because it's a part of your nature, your part.
4: Yeah, I just, uh, yeah. I, I missed it.
3: You mm. know, I missed it a lot. Right. Okay. And uh, in 2010, you opened a Hapa Ramen, a pop-up food stand at the Ferry Plaza Farmer's Market in San Francisco. And why did you open a ramen shop?
4: Uh, at that time, San Francisco was going through like a really interesting phase where a lot of people were moving away from traditional restaurants and doing things like... Pop-ups or stands at farmers markets, mm. um, underground dinners, things like that. Like uh,
3: Mission Chinese, exactly. starting from Mission yeah. Chinese, kind of.
4: Um, so I didn't have the the money to open a full scale restaurant at that time, but I knew that I wanted to do my own thing. And at the same time, I was eating a lot of ramen around San Francisco and mm-hmm. South Bay and the Peninsula, and uh, I was very inspired by actually uh, Simon, which is you know similar to ramen, but it's like a, a seafood based uh, stock dashi mm. heavy but it still has chashu in it and noodles and everything and so i started working on a recipe to make that at home mm. so
3: that's originated from uh, not from a japanese style but more like chinese style. right
4: right but uh that's what i ate, would eat when i was in hawaii you mm. know
3: and so
4: it was the inspiration from eating that and it, and honestly like the broth and so much lighter than many types of ramen broth you know it's like the polar opposite of like a tonkotsu
3: Mm, which is rich and heavy meaty
4: yeah so um i just started cooking a lot and then um i realized that there was a uh, a big part of the market that was missing in terms of doing anything different with ramen or doing ramen with like better quality ingredients Mm. you
3: know i'm curious though that i think as far as i i i understand uh ramen boom started uh when in New York, when 2004, uh, David Chang opened mm-hmm. a Momofuku uh, mm-hmm. Noodle Bar, and before that, there, you know, there are ramen shops for Japanese ex- expatriates, and for well, a long time, but then nobody's really taking it seriously. So, and then uh, Ippudo came from Japan, mm-hmm. and you know, other Setagaya opened, and all those, you know, like a domino effect. Yeah. But how did it start in San Francisco? The kind of ramen boom?
4: Um, I mean there was, I would say there's probably like four or five ramen places when I, when I started mm. and they're all very traditional. Um, and all of them are still around today and you know, they were around for a couple of years before I got into it.
3: Mm. So they buy Japanese shops?
4: Uh, yeah, yeah. But they're all like, uh, only God, I want to say like two of them are just straight up ramen shops. You know, mm. the other ones have like a little sushi counter or they do like other isakaya <laughs> stuff, right?
3: Like Asian restaurant.
4: Right. Right. Mm. Um, and then i came to realize that a lot of those places were buying just like soup base you Mm -hmm. know and that was like ram was a thing on their menu but they weren't actually like making stock and things like that Mm. so um we started up and then after us like a pretty good amount of restaurants started like rolling along you know um places came in from japan Mm. um other other people opened up places that were similar to like what we were doing trying to use like better ingredients and things like that, like that and make everything from scratch. So, mm, yeah,
3: Right. Sounds like uh, better ingredients. Of course, it's California. You have better, fresh ingredients. Right,
4: right. And yeah. just putting... Instead of putting the same stuff in every single bowl, kind of like rotating them throughout the seasons and everything.
3: Mm, okay. So, it um, sounds like the whole ramen boom spread throughout the country, but then um, it's very American. You have to come up with something completely new.
4: Yeah, I mean, like... The, like after David Chang opened Momofuku, it, like, didn't spread to San Francisco, strangely. I feel like L.A. was way ahead of us mm. in terms of, like, ramen culture and shops and places like that, you mm. know. Because um, by the time w- when I was starting Hapa, like, there was still not much to to eat in the Bay Area, you know. Mm. Like, you had to go as far south as San Jose to get, like, a really good bowl of ramen.
3: Right. Interesting. I mean, in, you know, Midwest or west at the south... They all started to have ramen shops. Right, So right. I thought San Francisco's the uh, one of the first.
4: Yeah, strangely, we, we were pretty far behind like everyone else, you mm. know.
3: Because we really had good food. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So um, so what was so special about ramen for you? It could have been, I, I don't know, like Brito or some other interesting creative I, food, right?
4: I think that it brought together uh, a lot of things that I like doing uh, in like, French restaurants or like a Nopa places like that, which were, I love making noodles, making pasta, things like that. Mm. Uh, I loved butchery. Mm. So I got to use, you know, whole animals to make the ramen at Hapa. And then uh, I love making sauces and stocks Mm. and things like that. So uh, it it combined a lot of different techniques uh, into one dish, Mm. you know.
3: So it's like a white canvas. You can just put almost anything right. into whatever you come up with.
4: Right. And you can make it as, like, elegant and light or as, like, rich and heavy as you want to. It's like there's a lot of uh, leeway
3: mm. in that
4: one dish. You right. Know?
3: Especially with your diverse background of cooking.
4: Yeah. Yeah. It, it was uh, it was really fun to just kind of, like, play around. I mean, like, we had one stock that we would serve at the market. Mm. It was called the hopper Ramen Broth. But that broth went through probably, like, 16 different versions as we went through. (laughs) Wow. And, like, every couple months, me and my cooks would stand there in front of this giant chalkboard and, like, draw out, like, how we were doing the stock and what we think we should do differently, Mm. Um, what was working, what wasn't working. And so we constantly tried to, like, tweak it and make it better and better and better and better.
3: Wow. So So, what's the final version?
4: uh, The final version, I mean, we went through times where we were doing... uh, You know, a lot of chicken in the broth. We had times we were doing like just pork necks in there. We had times we were doing like uh, a ton of trotters in there to get like a lot of collagen and fat. Mm. Um, What we ended up coming up with was just uh, pork necks and chicken feet was Mm. sort of like the main basis of it. And then we would take uh, onions, garlic, cook those in like a really hot rondo with sesame seed oil
5: Mm. until they
4: were like charred and like melted down, like really a ton of color on them. And then we would deglaze that with a little bit of shoyu, uh, mirin, sake.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: We would cook that down, uh, and that would become the basis for the tare. Mm-hmm. And then um, we basically would cook the stock down until it got pretty tonkotsu Like, it looked pretty cloudy, and like,
5: mm-hmm.
4: uh, and it was pretty rich. But then we would thin that down with the tare.
5: Mm-hmm. And so
4: you would get this, like... Sort of tonkotsu shoyu like hybrid, and then mm. it got seasoned with salt on top of that. So you kind of hit like all three of like shiyu, shoyu,
3: mm-hmm.
4: uh, tonkotsu, like all in one bowl.
3: Right, and also the the chicken flavor. What does it do to the to the taste? You
4: know, the chicken feet don't have a ton of flavor, but they add a lot of uh, they add a lot of just you know collagen and mm. richness right. uh, and a lot of body to the stock. Right. So it was still pretty like pork forward the mm. bowl, but we did offer a bowl that had little fried chicken nuggets in it along with the chashu. Mm. So we try to like have all the flavors sort of represented in the right. stock.
3: So it's kind of compatible.
4: Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, but yeah, I mean, but we we tweaked that broth so many times. But then we would other, do ones that were just strictly pork broth or that were strictly chicken mm. broth. Um, and we would do ones, we did beef broth even at one point, mm. um, which is not traditional. Right. Yeah. And <laughs> and, and people... The people that liked hapa ramen like loved us for that. But then there were people that would come and they wanted mm. very rigid shoyu, shio, tonkotsu, you mm. know, uh, flavor profiles, and they couldn't get that with us, and they would, you know, they hated it.
3: Right. Well, I'm curious. So how uh, does the beef stock taste like in ramen?
4: Uh, I mean, you can't really reduce down a beef stock to make it super rich. It just turns into like beef jus, you mm-hmm. know. So um, it was like a it was a thinner style broth. Um, and we would really like roast the bones really heavily and it could take on a lot more of the, uh, of the onions and the garlic and Mm. the tare in it, uh, to sort of like lift the flavor profile. You even Mm. had to like get, you, we would go heavier on sake and mirin to sort of raise the sweetness up. Otherwise it would just be this like super roasty, like salty broth,
5: you Mm. know?
4: So, um. Balancing with that sweetness was like a really big thing for us. Right. But it was, I mean, it was great.
3: Mm. You know? Well, because I, uh, the other day, I made a beef broth mm-hmm. with like really like a huge knuckles. And compared to chicken broth, it's so much collagen. Yeah. It's like the gelatin.
4: Yeah, it's rich. Right. It's rich. Um, and we would try to, yeah, we would try to cut that with the sweetness, try to like elevate that and then also we would always put something spicy in there Mm. to kind of cut across it also. Right.
3: And with the beef uh, broth, uh, uh, beef uh, beef soup, what's the topping to pair with?
4: Um, For that one, we did short rib.
3: Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. We did short
4: rib and we did, it was sort of like a like a we call it like a christmas dinner Mm. so it was a braised short rib and then we put uh like a pan fried potato cake in there too Mm. um and then we grated like a ton of horseradish over the top of it yeah
3: when you make it let me know yeah
4: (laughs) Yeah, it was a really popular one it was good
3: Mm. so what does uh hapa mean
4: uh hapa means half in hawaiian it's Mm. actually like some people consider it like a derogatory term like you call someone like you're not full Hawaiian, your hapa, you know, that's like, that's old. Mm. Uh, It's come to be like embraced by people who are mixed ethnicity, uh, mostly people who are half Asian, Mm. but I can refer to like anyone really that's half and half or Mm. even, you know, like not half and half, like kids, my my kids are a quarter Asian, so they call themselves kuapa. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I mean, uh, it means half and it was representative of the style of food that i was doing because i mm. wasn't doing strictly japanese food it was japanese flavors and a japanese dish but through the lens of like all this other technique and experience that i had had mm. so it was sort of a half japanese thing mm. so and right. also bringing it back to being inspired by Simon and then like the hawaiian culture and things like that mm.
3: so that's really exciting about this whole american mindset Like, uh, if you go to Japan, it's still very traditional, and it's kind of, you are feeling you're prohibited from being too creative.
4: Right. I mean, I think that, I definitely think that especially uh, Asian American uh, cooks have done some, like, really interesting stuff. And, like, like in you know, Danny at Mission Chinese probably being, like, the leader of that, Mm. of taking the food. But, I mean, like, Brandon Jew at Mr. Jew's in San Francisco's, uh, you know, he opened this... Chinese restaurant, like modern Chinese restaurant in Chinatown. It's like a very bold move. And, you know, mm. he received a Michelin star this year for that. So right. there's a lot of cool stuff happening out there.
3: Mm. Okay. So, um, so what is um, uh, the unique about your ramen? Like, you know, you said it's creative. But I heard that you were really into, you know, using organic farmers' produce or those things, right?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, starting there, just the ingredients were different. Mm. and that uh, we were in a farmer's market serving our food. Mm. So we had really deep uh, connections with all the people that supplied us with our (laughs) food. It's
3: in the farmer's market. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean,
4: we would feed them, you know, and we would kind of like go down to their stand and they'd be like, hey, I saved you a case of this, Mm. you know. And then we would feature that at the next market that we did. So uh, it was using really great vegetables that were in season, trying to make everything from scratch, mm. um, using whole animals for all the butchery that we did and for all the meats that we used, mm. which became hard because one day we would have pork belly and the next day we would have pork shoulder and the next day we would have, like, uh confit pork leg. And there would always be someone that came and be like, hey, do you guys have, like, belly today? And I'd be like, no, we have the shoulder. And they're like, oh, man. And then another person come, like, the next day, they be like, oh, do you guys have the shoulder today? And I'd be like, no, we have the leg. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so... That made it really different. And then just we took a lot of risks and did a lot of just kind of weird stuff um, and really like played around and tried to like push ourselves and do different flavors in the ramen.
3: Mm. Um, like what? <laughs> okay. I
4: mean, we we did some really like we did a really, really elegant uh, Meyer lemon and chicken broth mm. and the noodles had Meyer lemon in them. Wow. For an event that I did in Texas, I did huckleberry noodles that were smoked. I smoked the flour mm. and then put... Uh, dehydrated huckleberry into them and then did that with a duck broth mm. um, and then we did like low brow stuff we did a cheeseburger ramen one time which was that beef <laughs> broth and it had like skune but had the skune had was beef and it mm-hmm.
3: had like a basically ground beef
4: yeah and, it, and it had cheese in it mm. um you know we did silly stuff like that and it had like charred lettuce and everything in it so um,
3: that makes sense.
4: Yeah, it was, and it was good. You know? mm. And it was sort of like, because there was the ramen burger then, and so we did cheeseburger, <laughs> <laughs> like bringing it back the other way. Oh,
5: yeah.
4: Um, so yeah, and then like uh, making noodles and things like that, we uh, found that we could like incorporate a lot of flavor into the liquid that we hydrated the flour with.
5: Mm. Um,
4: so you could season that liquid to make a flavored noodle um, like if you wanted to, you know, you could make like a shrimp stock mm. and hydrate the noodle with shrimp stock mm. and then add like dried ground shrimp into it to make right. like a really good shrimp noodle.
3: Mm. So it's a built-in shrimp flavor. Right. Mm. Right. Uh,
4: which I feel like is something that people still aren't really doing with their ramen noodles is like driving, flavoring the noodles themselves, mm. you know?
3: It's, it's really hard though to make. I mean, it's like, you know, sun noodle. And Kenshiroki came here and talked about his noodles. And people looking for customization, because it's by yourself, it's very hard. Right. Too much work to do.
4: Right. Yeah, I mean, that's a funny thing. Like, uh, tons of people will ask about a ramen place. They go, Oh, do they make their own noodles? And I'm like, That's not really a thing. (laughs) Places don't really make their noodles, but there's this. Image in a lot of people's head of like the ramen chef, you know, like hand cutting the noodles every day, and I'm like, that's not really a thing that,
5: mm. that a lot of
4: ramen chefs do. Mm. Most of them buy in their noodles,
5: right. which is
4: not a. I mean, some noodles, noodles are are like the best, you know. Mm. And if you can't make them as good as they make them, then like why do it, you know? But mm. um, I we took a lot of pride in taking on like trying to incorporate. Mm. all these flavors uh, into the noodle and just doing different stuff, different shapes, things like that,
3: mm, you know. Right. Yeah, that's, I think, the different mindset between ramen chefs, which mm-hmm. is really almost zen mindset about dashi and soup. Right. <laughs> stuff, Versus, you know, um, incorporating the creativity into noodles, which is beyond their mindset. Well, I
4: think. and I mean, it really drives your costs up too, mm. you know. So the more that you do you know these really nice ingredients, so that you're doing a whole animal that maybe one year costs you four dollars a pound. The next year, the farmer has to raise his prices to a dollar fifty for you. Things like that, mm. um, and then making everything from scratch, so you have a lot of labor.
5: Mm.
4: It drives up the price for your guest, and they have this idea in their head that a, a bowl of ramen should be like nine dollars. You mm. know. Um, and then they come and you're charging, you know, maybe $18 for it,
5: Aye. you
4: know, so the perception of value mm. can sometimes be hard to get across until mm. they understand that, like, how much thought has gone into this bowl and how we did all these different little things.
3: Aye. It's not fair. <laughs>
4: it's not fair. I mean, David Chang's talked about that a lot, about how Brahmin shouldn't cost less than, like, a bowl of pasta cost an Italian restaurant. But it does. It has to, mm. you know, because of the public's idea of what it is. Right. But I mean, like for the most like deluxe bowl of ramen we served. I weighed it one day and it weighed like three pounds. It's like too much food, Mm. you know? And I was like, for three pounds of food and for like what we charge, (laughs) (laughs) like it's really like a good value, you Mm, know? So.
3: Right. And also that uniqueness, you cannot get it anywhere else.
4: Right. 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 Um, yeah. And it, it was definitely, I think we definitely hit like a nice niche of people, uh, The customers that became like our most loyal customers were people who hadn't eaten ramen before. Mm. They would just start coming to our stand. Ah. And that was their first experience with ramen.
3: Mm. So it was a very strategic, uh, you know, location that it's not the ramen shop and it's part of the the farmer's market.
4: Yeah, yeah. And uh, luckily, San Francisco is generally very cold, Mm. you know, I mean, relatively to New York. Um, But, you know, we're down on the waterfront were there you know in the morning until like the early afternoon mm. so it was usually like pretty foggy and like kind of like damp outside and we had this like nice warming thing that we could give to people mm. and then yeah we're amongst like all the farms and everything right. but also like it's changed a little bit down at that market but the vendors that were there were also very high quality vendors and what they did you know mm. like 4505 meats was there and pizza Politano was there and Namugaji was there doing like really great Korean food
5: Mm. so it wasn't
4: like your normal uh, your normal farmer's market like go get a thing of like kettle corn and walk around like you (laughs) could really eat a great a great lunch there Mm,
3: so destination
4: yeah yeah yeah
3: okay I wish there's a similar one in New York City yeah (laughs) (laughs) right okay so let's take a quick break here and when we come back we'll talk about Richie's unique ramen recipes so please stay with us
5: is the story of men and women who shed not only their clothes
1: but also their today's program is brought to you by corin supplier of japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies corin is proud of their japanese culture and traditions but they want you to know that their products are not just for japanese restaurants their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant from French to Pan-Asian to American, and that is why they're located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's unique store in Lower Manhattan is home to perhaps the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan, plus the rarest natural sharpening stones and exquisitely designed tableware. They also host special events, such as knife sharpening demonstrations and parties with New York's most famous chefs and restaurateurs. Koren is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the implicit and elegance of Japanese culture to your table, be it in your home or in the finest restaurant. For more information, visit Koren.com.
3: Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Eats, broadcasting live from a studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Akiko Katema, and my guest today is Richie Nakano, who is a chef based in San Francisco and a former chef and founder of Hapa Ramen that was known for unique and rummy-rich Dutchess ramen. So um, we'll talk about your original ramen in a moment, but for listeners who are not familiar with ramen, um, could you tell us the basic components of ramen?
4: Uh, yeah, I mean, well, it's just it's noodles, broth, uh, a piece of chashu, mm-hmm. and sometimes an egg, and I mean, traditionally, they'll put menma in it. Uh, mm, or that's uh,
3: the fermented uh, bamboo, bamboo shoot, Bamboo shoot, right? yeah. Mm. Um,
4: some places put, like, a little uh, little ball of, like, blanched spinach in there. Um, and then, you know, depending on the style you get, there'll be some sort of flavored oil
3: in mm. there, usually. Right. Well, now I really want to hear, because, you know, we know dashi and soup and thari. We just kind of mix the whole terms, mm-hmm. right? So, uh, as far as I understand, there's uh, soup. That's the liquid we see in the bowl. Mm-hmm. And uh, can you break then once it's made of?
4: Yeah, I mean, there's, so there's a lot of different ways to do that. Some places do a double soup where they add in dashi and they add in stock, you mm-hmm. know. Um, some places add in, like, a lot of, like, dried fish right into the bowl.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: Um, so it varies from place to place and recipe to recipe. But the stock itself um, is generally pork. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're using I mean, any mixture of uh, pork neck bones, pork trotters. Mm. Um, some places use the head.
5: Mm-hmm. Like
4: I knew a guy who made who would make a stock out of twenty heads.
5: <laughs> wow.
4: Yeah, it's really weird. Mm. Um, but it was great. His stock was really good. Um, so, and then uh, some places have you blanching the bones to get all the blood off of them, so you get a very like clean, like mm. white stock. Hey. Um, and some places roast the bones, and some places add a little bit of chicken in there, some places don't. And mm-hmm. then um, there's a ton of different ways to do it. You can, if you're gonna use dashi, you can make dashi separately.
5: Mm-hmm.
4: Uh, I've seen places, and I've done myself, where we would make the pork stock itself. We would uh, take all the bones out, and then we would throw in kombu. Mm. and just steep it steep it in there for a couple hours okay. pull the kombu and then add in bonito steep that in there for a little while and then pull it out right. and then would strain the stock
3: mm. so when you say stock basically um so bone based or maybe sometimes vegetable stock.
4: yeah uh, we would do we did a vegetarian stock that was basically like a, a kombu miso stock mm. so kombu pull that out we would add in a lot of vegetables uh onions carrots garlic Mm. uh, ginger and then we would just let that go for 30 minutes or so Mm. and then we would add in a lot of shiro miso okay um and then we would take like a roasted vegetable in season Mm. make a puree out of that and then fold that into the stock
3: oh wow so that's very original
4: yeah so like in like in the fall we would do like a butternut squash stock
3: Mm. you know Ah.
4: <laughs> yeah, it's good.
3: Right. Because um, I think in, in Japan, people say dashi, and I think there's tare, which I'm going to ask you mm. now. But the dashi plus tare is uh, the soup. Right. And so so that what is tare?
4: So tare uh, is taking shoyu, uh, usually garlic, ginger, sugar, sometimes sake, mirin, sometimes mm. water even to mm. thin it down. And... Uh, you can make a basic tare out of that, mm-hmm. and if you want to sort of go in a different direction, some people like to put bones into the tare itself to mm. kind of fortify that. Um, a lot of like uh, uh, a lot of uh, Japanese places will take grilled bones mm. and will put them in there to get like a smoky flavor into the tare. Aye. So um, yeah, and then you can use that for seasoning ramen. You can use it for. You know, cooking your chashu, and
5: mm. uh,
4: there's a ton of different applications for it. You know, if you nice. reduce the tare, you can use it for yakitori glaze, like mm. all sorts of things.
3: Okay, so basically, uh, you s- separate dashi stock part and tare because tare is more like a um, concentrated accent.
4: Yeah, I mean that's where all your seasoning is going to come from. Mm. Is, is really the tare. Okay. And then you can even finish it off with some sort of like seasoned salt or something like that at mm. the end, just to give it like a little bit of a of a boost. You right.
3: Know? So you have as a ramen chef, you have to come up with two unique parts, like dashi stock and the tare.
4: Yeah, and you have to, and they all have to be balanced. You know, you can't have one that really like knocks out the other one, or else mm. there's no point even including that other component.
5: Right. Nice.
4: So making like a really intense dashi that has like a lot of bonito in it, it mm. becomes really important you know um making sure your tari doesn't over reduce and become acrid right. is really important and then making sure your stock is nice and clean and, like, you've gotten all the fat out of it and everything that didn't, like, emulsify into the liquid. Mm. Um, that's a really important step, too. Because
3: so, right. it affects uh, the mouthfeel of the uh, noodles, too.
4: Yeah. I mean, like, I've definitely had bowls of ramen where there's, like, a, like an inch of fat on the top of the bowl. <laughs> right. You know? And some people like that, you know, mm-hmm. um, like the Koteri style ramen, but mm. it's, re- it's real right. It's real rich.
3: <laughs> you can eat it every day, for right. sure. Right. And the also there is uh, a flavored oil. Mm-hmm. So, how does it work?
4: I mean, you just take oil, and there's a ton of different oils you can make. You can make garlic oil, chili oil, you know, black garlic oil, which is basically not, like, fermented garlic, but just burnt garlic. Mm. But you burn it very, very slowly, mm. um, so it doesn't become, like, super acrid and bitter. It takes on almost like a, like a coffee-like
5: mm. uh,
4: flavor to it. Um, I've seen chefs make shrimp oils, uh, chicken oils by taking, like, chicken wings and frying them in oil. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of different oils you can use, you mm. know. Um, so
3: it's another um, source of creativity.
4: Right, right. Mm. And it's also just a way of using up stuff if you have it around the kitchen, mm. you know. Um, like, the shrimp oil was just made from shrimp shells if you were using shrimp in another dish in your restaurant, things mm. like that.
3: Okay. so So you put the oil, like, sprinkle at the end? Usually,
4: so... The traditional pickup for ramen is uh, soup in first. Mm. And so you'll see the chef working there and they have their stock. They have their tare. They have dashi. They have a little bit of flavored oil. They maybe have like a powder or some sort that they're adding in there.
5: Mm.
4: And you'll see them add them all in. And Mm. everything's measured, you know, according to the ladle size that they want. And then at the end, they'll put in the noodles, fluff the noodles a little bit, and then garnish goes on top.
5: Mm.
4: We did it differently. We would always do noodles down first and then soup and then build the garnish on top Mm. and i'm not sure why we did that (laughs) (laughs) but it just became to be the way that we Mm. that we made our soup you know Mm. um
3: maybe it's uh for presentation it's easier to control the shape of the noodle that's the way you did
4: i think that was part of it uh and then also just uh in terms of the way we did the stock at, at the market we couldn't have like thirty different little banes of stuff around. <laughs> we had like a we had ten you know a ten foot table that we would work on. <laughs> right. So um, we were limited in space there.
3: Mm, right. Okay. Um, so now uh, the ramen itself that you made. So most classic ramen dishes, soy, salt, miso. That's I think the three basic. But what kind of ramen did you serve at Hapa Ramen? I vegetarian? mean,
4: it was uh, we the vegetarian stock was that rotating one that you know just from season to season, it would change. Like in the summertime, it would be a corn broth with miso. Mm. Uh, and in the fall, it would be butternut squash with miso. In the spring, we could feature vegetables in there. Mm. And it would be like very just tons of different vegetables in as the garnish. It would be a light miso broth. And then we would take like green garlic and make like a green garlic sesame oil to mm. put on top of it. So sort of that one swayed through the seasons and sort of changed and everything. Although we would get people that would come by and would say, like it would be like July, and they'd be like, "Do you have the butternut squash broth?" And they'd be like, "No." <laughs> um, and then the the Hapa ramen broth is that one that we constantly kept changing and refining and everything. And mm-hmm. honestly, like for the first month that we were making that, it wasn't very good. I don't think you know, like looking back on it now, because it was a recipe I took out of my kitchen. In my home and tried to scale so instead of making it for 10 people at home
3: mm.
4: i was all of a sudden making it for like 400 people <laughs> and scaling it was really hard you mm. know um and,
3: and especially in the limited space
4: yeah yeah so uh but yeah i mean and we tried to make that broth just a complete collaborative effort in terms of like all the cooks that worked there
5: mm.
4: and uh pretty much everyone that, that worked at hoppa i've stayed really close with and they're like family to me now you know and they all played as big a hand in like the development of that stock as i think i did Mm. because you know after a while they were the ones that were making it from day to day so yeah so i mean like it went through a lot of different incarnations but the main basis of it was a pork stock with a little bit of chicken in it with really really intensely cooked vegetables in it with tare in it Mm. um by the end of it, we weren't putting dashi in it anymore.
5: Mm.
4: We tried to have like the flavor of those charred vegetables with the tare,
3: right.
4: and then just the flavor of the soup sort of be the main focus.
3: Mm, so you don't need a uh, um, cured items like a bonito or I mean, strong flavors.
4: We always had that stuff around, mm-hmm. and we used it in a lot of different stuff. And there were there were years of mm. haba ramen where there was dashi in the stock, you know. But I think we got to this point where. We were looking at the soup and we were saying, like, how can we, like, strip this down to, like, what its core essence should be? Mm. And I think that there was, going the other way, there was times during it where we were like, oh, this should have, like, more of this or more of that, you know. And kind of, like, let ourselves, like, run with it a little too much, you Mm. know. So but by the end of our run, we had reeled it back into being this real tight, concise dish.
3: So this is more.
4: Yeah, I think so. Mm. I think so.
3: Right and by the way I have a, I found a recipe uh, one of your signatures I think it's called the Big Daddy Ramen
5: yeah
4: <laughs>
3: so I want to talk about that because it's it really sounds fascinating and you made of course noodles noodles by yourself and uh, for you know the, it's not the classic recipe and you used the baking soda not the kansui mm-hmm. kansui kansui is alkaline mm-hmm. kind of sodium um liquid and then um also used the semolina, and eggs in right, noodles. So right. w- why all those three different components? I
4: mean, it was just taking, you know, making. The, but so back then, <laughs> it was a really hard time. That was that recipe is from the first year that we were in business, mm. and I was making those noodles every day. And the we were making it on the small little Imperia pasta maker. Like we didn't have like a commercial ramen machine, mm. you
5: know,
4: and so. To make enough noodles for service, it was about eight hours of, like, straight work. <laughs> and you had to just keep going and, like, sheeting them out and then cutting them and then drying them and sheeting them out and cutting them and drying them. You had, have, like, a really good rhythm to it. You could, like, barely stop to go to the bathroom. Mm. <laughs> but in terms of the development of that recipe, it was what I made at home using, like, the techniques I'd used to make pasta... And just trying to like carry them across into ramen, you know, and I never had anyone show me how to make ramen noodles before. So mm. it was just me like making a recipe at home and seeing like, oh, this, this works and they taste good. Um, as time went on, like once we started making the noodles like on a commercial ramen machine, a lot of that stuff changed. Like um, we realized that you had to have a lot less moisture in the noodle. Um, so eggs would be subbed out for egg powder. Mm. You know, things like that. Um, and then uh, we would use uh, a really, really dry, uh, really high-protein high, uh, high protein Japanese flour to dust them with so they mm. would stay nice and dry. Wow. So as time went on, like, the recipe changed and things sort of, like, dropped off. But in the beginning, it was mostly just, like, not knowing how to do it any other way to mm. keep them from sticking or to get flavor into them, you know. Mm.
3: But I really like this creativity. Like, yeah, <laughs> how yeah. you worked out.
4: It was, uh, it, so it was me and a, a friend of mine that I worked with at NOPA would come over. Mm. And we had the same day off every week. And we would just stand in my kitchen and we would make noodles like over and over and over again make this recipe and that recipe
5: mm. and then
4: take notes about them and eat them and just sort of see what we thought. But I mean, neither one of us really knew what we were doing. Mm. And then we did a pop up. And he ended up having to sheet out like five hundred portions of noodles. <laughs> and he did it over the course of two days and like I've never seen a guy work so hard on like the tiniest little pasta machine. Mm. But yeah. Wow. So it was just like a lot of experimentation and mm. playing around with it.
3: Right. So I'm sure it's it's contributes to your current noodles too. Y-
4: yeah, yeah. I mean and and also just the stories of like those days of just being in front of that machine all day. <laughs> There's a picture out there somewhere of us doing it. And we had this most like rickety setup. It was like we would take like two eight quart containers and turn them over. And then there'd be like a rod that we would like, tape on there. And that's what we'd use to dry the noodles. Mm. And there'd be like trays stacked up with like the noodles going into them and their little bundles and everything.
3: Right.
4: And then there was just flour everywhere, <laughs> you know? Right. So.
3: Mm. Okay. And uh, the other thing I noticed that you used uh, sous vide, mm-hmm. uh, which is basically a vacuum-packed, uh, temperature-controlled, high-tech cooking method, mm-hmm. which wouldn't be found in Japanese tradition. Right. restaurants. So what's the benefit of uh, using? I think you use this for, as far as I know, pork shoulder and the egg as well.
4: Yeah, so we cook all the eggs. and I mean, honestly, this, using sous vide for us was a way to cook a large volume
1: mm. of food
4: all in one shot and know that it would all come out exactly the same. Mm. And so if you think about the market, if we sold 400 bowls of ramen and, you know, just half of those people got an egg, mm. if we were, you know, soft cooking the egg and then had to peel all of them and then cut all of them, like you just, it would add so much work onto our day. Mm. And it was a way for us to offer our guests, honestly, like most of them had never had one of the, a, a, uh, an egg, out of a circulator before mm. um, and we could offer them a whole egg instead of like a half an egg that a lot of ramen shops gave mm. and then in terms of the chashu yeah it was just trying to like find a way that we could do it all in one shot mm. and get all the pork cooked for the next day right. um, and make sure it all come out the same and know mm. exactly when to be done um, so it wasn't really a thing where I was using sous vide because I thought that it was like a, a better cooking method mm-hmm. I mean honestly like I think that if you can braise your chashu in tare, that's the best way to do it. Mm
5: -hmm.
4: And we would kind of like do like a cheating way of doing that by putting tare in the vacuum sealed bag with it and Mm. then would circulate it in there, you know? But even when you do it that way, it doesn't get like super caramelized the way like a really good piece of chashu does. Mm. Um, So yeah, we just kind of like did it that way. And then for other things, like if we did like turaniku, like the braised jowl, Mm -hmm. I would do that stovetop. Okay. Um, because I think I could get like more flavor into it, you know. Mm. And then like we would take that and like grill that over Japanese charcoal.
3: Mm. So
4: we had like these other chashus we would do. Mm. There were more traditional methods, but for the the chashu we served like every day, and it had to go in every single bowl. Mm. We had we pretty much had to do it in the circulator.
3: Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I thought it was really a good idea for consistency, which is very hard, especially ramen shops. They tend to have high turns
4: well and i think you go to a lot of ramen shops and you get a piece of chashu and it can be pretty dry
3: mm, you know yeah, that's so sad yeah right um
4: you know especially if a place uses like pork loin or something like that for their chashu mm-hmm. like those pieces are always so like chalky yeah. and dry. so
3: you like dip you know soak in the soup right and they get moist yeah yeah that's and, very
4: sad because you're having this like like very rich like like velvety stock and like these great chewy noodles and there's this, this like dry like cardboardy <laughs> thing in there
3: right okay so sweet may be a good way to on the bomb.
4: Yeah, I mean, like when we get when uh, at the restaurant we had a combi oven, like a steam oven. Mm. So every single night, we would you know get that thing going and would put the pork in, mm. and like last thing, like basically at midnight, you know, get it going, and then the person that came in at eight a.m. would pull it out mm. and would chill it and then would cut it. So um, and that was basically the way we would do it with the circulators. But I was telling a friend yesterday, we broke so many circulators. Oh. Over the years, because we were circulating such a giant volume of water
5: mm. and
4: they're not really meant to do that they're meant to like circulate this little tiny volume of right. water at like a fine dining restaurant mm. so yeah we uh we killed a lot of <laughs> immersion circulators over the years,
3: <laughs> right, but they worked yeah that' <laughs> so yeah. hard for you right um so um so you eventually opened a uh, uh, brick and Mortar version of Haparaman, which uh, fortunately closed in March two thousand and fifteen so uh, over that five years, did you see um, uh, the change in customers' palette of ramen?
4: Definitely. Uh, like I was saying, like a lot of people would come to us and be like, "I've never even had ramen before," mm. and then they would eat our ramen. Uh, and there were people that came in the beginning and didn't like it, and they mm-hmm. would come back like two years later and they'd be like, "Oh man, it's like it's so good." Mm. So uh, it was interesting to see people especially as like ramen culture sort of like pervaded in san francisco mm. So how people would come to us and most of the time they'd be like oh this is really cool it's something different you know and you guys are do, doing something really neat i mean other people hated it you know because mm. uh, they wanted like a very traditional style of ramen right. you know um but i mean for the most part we had very loyal customers mm. uh and a very very intense loyal following which which was great mm. um And really, at the restaurant, like, we really started, like, hit our stride in terms of, like, doing different dishes, experimenting, seeing what had worked in the past and everything. So, you know, it kind of sucked. Like, when the restaurant closed, we were really, like, hitting our stride in terms of, like, being confident about what we were doing and, like, putting out a really great, like, exciting product. Mm. So I feel like I got stopped short a little bit. Mm. But, um yeah, I mean, and I think people just became more and more open to, like, the crazy kind of stuff we were doing with the bowls, mm, you know?
3: Interesting. So it almost sounds like, a, you know, sushi starting from uh, Dragon Walls and mm-hmm. then going up to serious. Yeah, um, yeah.
4: And I mean, when that's the thing is, like, the food was, you know, very... I think there's, a, like, an elegance to a lot of it, but we really tried not to take ourselves too seriously, you mm. know? We we wanted to have fun with the food and for it to be approachable. I mean, like both of my children basically grew up eating ramen. And so like seeing the way that they would eat it and mm. the way they enjoyed it, I always tried to keep that in my frame of mind in terms of the way that like I approached it, you right. know,
3: you don't want to be nervous when you eat. something. Yeah.
4: You know, I never, <laughs> I never wanted the base of what I was making to be something they wouldn't eat, mm. you know? Right. So there were certain dishes like I would put on garnishes and they didn't want that kind of stuff. But, As long as the base soup was good and the pork was good and the noodles were good and they would be into it. I try to always keep that Mm -hmm. in my focus.
3: Great. So um, what are you working on right now and uh, what's your next plan?
4: Uh, So I've been doing a thing with my friend back in San Francisco that we call IDK, which stands for I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, it's just like a little pop-up thing that we do. And uh, our friend Maya, who's up in Portland, is involved in it also. And it's basically just, like, a very non-serious, like, Mm -hmm. anti-pop-up. And we try to make it really approachable for people who live in the neighborhood where we do it. Mm -hmm. Um, We try to make it affordable. Uh, So, so far, we've done, like, an all-chicken pop-up. We did, like, a sort of, like, a traditional Italian restaurant pop-up with, like, eggplant parmesan and, like, lasagna and ziti Mm -hmm. and things like that. And coming into the end of this month and then rolling into february we're gonna go back to doing another ramen pop-up which is gonna be the first one that we've done since like last year sometime like mid last year and then roll off that one into like a pot pie pop-up we're gonna do a pan pizza pop-up and then roll back into doing ramen again Mm. so um yeah it's kind of getting back into doing that and um yeah, it's doing a lot of writing and things like that. Mm. Trying to see my kids more.
3: Right. Yeah, yeah that's a good time. Very, very important. Yeah. Right. So uh, do you think you're going to eventually open another ramen restaurant?
4: I, the, the other day, my son came up to me and he goes like, I wish you had a restaurant again. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, I, I, I want to. It's just San Francisco is so expensive, mm. you know. Uh, I mean, to open a place there is about... A minimum million dollars you know and it's really hard to find workers there mm. uh cost of ingredients is really high it's hard it's just hard to make it a sustainable business right. you know um so i want to i just think that in terms of where in the city it was mm. and you know how i structured the business in terms of like is it a restaurant is it like a really fast casual place like what is the model there Mm. all of those would come into consideration and I think right now isn't the right time because I think San Francisco is about to go through a pretty big downturn in terms of restaurants you know Mm. a lot of restaurants are kind of hurting there right now okay so Kind of waited out, you know? Mm. Um, I have no intention. Because
3: uh, the restaurants are kind of burnt out for the cost and a lot of stuff.
4: Yeah, I mean, a lot, of, yeah, a lot of like high-profile places opened in the mm. last year, and a lot of them closed. Mm. You know, I mean, like really expensive, like multi-million dollar restaurants. Kind of like came and went very quickly.
5: Right.
4: And, um, you know, a lot of the people that live there now can eat lunch or dinner for free at their work. They have a giant cafeteria that,
5: you mm. know, has
4: a lot of great chefs and cooks working at it. Um, You know, like Google, Facebook, Twitter, they all have that. So that's kind of hurting restaurants a lot. And then, you know, like meal delivery stuff uh, is sort of hurting restaurants a lot. So I'm going to kind of wait it out and Mm. sort of see what happens. It's
3: interesting because diners' uh, lifestyle, I mean, even if they go to expensive restaurant, they don't want to be kind of served, like uh, treated as uh, someone special. Right. It's more like you share and have a kind of conversation casually and just like an uh, extension of the dining room.
5: Right, right. Right.
3: So maybe, um, I don't know. You may not need a restaurant. <laughs>
4: yeah, yeah. Maybe not. I mean, mm. um, I don't know. Doing the, doing the pop-up thing now has, has been fun and, um, doing it. Cause you know, we did pop-ups while we were running the, the farmer's market stand and it was fun then, but it added a lot of pressure onto our wheat cause we're already serving, you know, anywhere from 900 to 1,200 bowls of ramen mm-hmm. in that in that short time span. And then we would throw, like, a couple events on top of that. Mm. And doing it now without having the market and having, like, a little more freedom and a little more, like, time. And being able to kind of, like, dip and dive with what we're doing on the menu has made it really fun. It's very refreshing, like, creatively. Mm. It's been refreshing. Aye. So we're going to keep going with that for right now.
3: Mm. Okay. So, um... Well, just a quick last question about the ramen. So, you know, ramen became, I think, a part of American diet. And what do you see um, as the future of ramen is going to stay popular? Or could be, I don't know, some different form of ramen?
4: I think it's going to stay popular. I think it needs to evolve. Um, I think that people need to stop being so obsessed with, like, tonkotsu and things like that because that really seems like the prevailing trend right now mm. is like tonkotsu and like really heavy stocks. Right. So, um, I'd love to see people sort of like getting over that. It's like when bacon was really popular. It was like, put bacon on everything. That's what tonkotsu feels like to me, mm. you know? So I'd love to see the ramen culture move beyond that. And people get into more like shoyu style and, you know, things like that, like lighter styles. Mm. Cause um, it
3: used to have a vegetarian yeah yeah
4: Mm. yeah and i'd love to see yeah i'd love to see people do more stuff with vegetarian ramen than just doing like a shiitake stock Mm. um and uh then i just love to see like diners opinions about ramen change in terms of thinking that it's like a cheap food
3: Mm. it's not
4: it's not cheap to to produce at all
3: (laughs) right that was uh, like 50 years ago yeah yeah (laughs) right okay so uh good luck
4: thank you thank you for having me
3: and so thank you for joining us and um, keep us posted. I will. <laughs> okay. Uh, so where can we find your latest activities, update?
4: Oh, I mean, so I'm on Twitter and Instagram at LineCook, just all one word. And then uh, our pop-up is on Twitter and Instagram at Concepts.
3: Okay. Well, I have to check that out. Yeah. Right. Okay. So listeners, um, if you have any questions or comments about the show, our uh, well, suggestions for guests or topics of the show, please contact us at Japan needs at heritagevideo And Japan needs is live at 3 p.m. on Mondays and always available at heritagevideo iTunes, and Stitcher podcasts. Today's show is made possible by Corinne, and our engineer is uh, Vitro Hash. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next week.